This presentation is from UX Australia 2022, day one. Welcome all. I um, hope you are having a great conference day on site or remotely as myself. And uh, today I want you to invite about thinking about voice interaction. So I would like you to think about, about the last time you talked to Siri, Alexa, or tried a voice input, for example, on Google Maps, um, and got an, an answer or an interaction which was kind of unexpected, unsuitable, and you wondered who did design this. So, well, today you will get some insights on what needs to be taken into account for voice interaction uh, through this use case of a um, service robot in a museum. Shortly about myself, so that you know who is actually talking to you, if my slide continues. <laughs> um, I'm Lilia. I'm currently working as senior UX researcher at Trivago, also as freelancer. And my background is a mix of yeah, computer science and psychology and, and, and cognitive and media science. To give you context about the use case I'm going to talk about, uh, it's based inside the project Skilled, which is a research project between the, the University of Applied Science in Cologne and the Divisistel, which is our uh, yeah, cooperation partner in that. And it's sponsored by the Ministry of Education and Research in Germany. And we, inside this project, we investigate human-machine interaction for service and traveling. So we use different robots, virtual agents, and investigate how this and in which way they can actually interact with human in scenarios such as a train station, an airport, a museum. And one of those uh, is actually the use case I'm going to present you today. So to set the scene, the uh, the museum, which or the, the public space, which we were uh, talking about in, in this session, is a German museum called Oceaneum in the north of Germany. And it's about yeah, the ocean, as the name says. Uh, and it has like exhibitions, but also some big fish tanks, like the ones you can see here. And has a quite big visitor volume of from 300,000 visitors per month. What was our goal there? The goal was to provide customer service to museum visitors, but not as a uh, with a normal human, let's say it like that, a service employee, but using the social robot. So we placed there the social robot uh, to be able to answer questions such as around location. So for example, where's the next toilet? Or also about what is the biggest animal in the ocean? Or talking simply about himself, like what's your name? How old are you? What are you actually doing in here? So far so good, uh, but what's the challenge in here? The challenge, really, like from a design perspective, are public spaces. If you look at this image, which is like a festival or maybe a concert um, or just maybe a really busy street, uh, the challenges in here uh, is that if you think about using voice interaction in that environment, what comes to your mind? Would it work or not? And like even maybe the next step, like putting a robot in between here. How would that work? So we're actually facing a lot of challenges when designing voice interaction, specifically also if that voice interaction is not on your personal device, but radar device, which is really on the location. So for one aspect, there's, for example, data noise. 
looking at this, there is um, background noises, there are conversations which are going on next to maybe yourself when you're trying to do voice interaction or interacting with a voice-based system. And yeah, they basically just really randomly empty. Also, like from a technical point of view, if you're trying to detect a human and there are like a lot of times users just or other people walking by um, and walking in between the camera, for example, it's also hard to detect, um, to keep track of all the user or who is actually the user and who is just a bystander. Um, in this context, there's also the, the race of privacy concerns and also regulation that depends on the country, but um, yeah, it's really seldomly <laughs> acceptable to um, yeah, use personal data or to basically film and store data of on public spaces um, without having an explicit permission about um, people who are actually seen on that data. So at least that's how it's in Germany. Um, and along with that, there is also comes the user acceptance of the technology, because if it's a voice system, it's something you have to speak out loud um, in comparison to, for example, typing something into your phone and asking the phone textually or visually. Um, so it, there are some privacy concerns around the, the use, actually, of voice interaction, which also affects the user acceptance of it. Um, other factors which are actually influencing if users even want to interact with voice interaction or system and a public space are um, yeah basically the experience like they really know how to how to use the system um, or also like do they want to like do they have the capabilities otherwise also like from a technical side point of view to really interact with it so um, this really adds like a lot of importance for the for designing the user experience. Also in regards to the last points which I added here, the changing and diverse users. So for public spaces systems, the user is really always changing. So you might have to have some recurrent users and visitors which come frequently to that space. But if you think about the context which I'm talking about, about um, a museum, you really suddenly go like multiple times in a, the same museum. Um, maybe you are just on a holiday, it's the first time you're going to that destination, you're visiting the museum, encounter a service robot, and then you never talk to him again <laughs> or her. Um, so there, there are a lot of changing and diverse users, um, which actually shapes as well how the, the technology can be adapted to the user and um, their expectations. And what I mean by diverse, that's a, yeah, a big question and it's the same for AI. So how can we actually define diversity regarding personal, physical or social characteristics um, for the AI or our robot, a chatbot, a voice assistant, according to which differences in humans um, should the AI actually adapt to? So um, that's really a key question and even more in the in the setting of public space because I give you some spoiler on how this actually looked like um, when real users interacted with it. 
You see here, there was a whole big family um, with children of different ages. There's actually even a small one, which the mother is holding. Um, you have differences in gender, in age, and probably as well in um, previous experience or in the technical um, yeah, capabilities or experiences of the users. But all of them right now in that image, which uh, which you see, were interacting with this voice interaction. Even if they were bystanders, they were looking at it and being part of the interaction. And even more complex, like you have a group, so on about who should the system really adapt to? Like, if you think about human-human interaction, how do you behave if you have, for example, two children and two adults? So who do you adapt to? probably according to who you're currently speaking with. But at the same time, it needs to be first this detection about, okay, which constellation of group is that? So to address this, to address user diversity in our design, uh, we started with looking into the all available data which the museum um, had about visitor data. So who were actually our potential users? Along with that, we are also shadowing customer service. So uh, here you see the reception um, in Corona times quite closed as well. Um, so the reception of the museum where we observe basically which user type, we call it like that, or which user group type were actually arriving to the museum. So the outcome of that was that we had, as I just said, like user group types and white group types. Um, because normally, like in this specific scenario, and also in public spaces, users are not alone. Like, like going to a museum in that case really seldomly takes place within, um, yeah, as a solo experience, but rather it's a group experience. So how we proceeded there was to basically, mm, yeah, cluster it more according to gender and age. Um, not so much to gender, but rather to age, according to the, um, yeah, along with the capabilities they were actually having from the technical side point of view, and group them. So for, to put, give you an example, we had a user type adult, user type child um, from a specific age range, and um, then together with them, they were like a family, and if there were also senior um, visitors, they were like an extended family. So kind of basically having the individual different types and making subgroups out of it. Um, however, from there we had a lot of different, um, yeah, different groups which we wanted and needed to consider. However, from the first iteration, we focused on actually one specific um, group, which was um, a pair of adults. So um, basically, adults without children. And why is that? In this case, it was really related to once the data we had, like who was actually coming to. So basically in nearly every constellation which we had from this user group times, at least one adult was present. So we decided that with this adult present, like some of the users could at least guide this, um, the, the interaction. And as well, it's due to actually current technology limitations. So to give you an example, if you think about children-robot interaction, that's a huge, huge field, research field, which is still really open and broad um, because of a lot of, of data is actually lacking 
as well for training for the AI. So the speech recognition technology currently is not really suitable for children's voices because um, also from one side, there's data privacy um, aspects to really conduct research with children. It's like more complicated than, um, than with adults, which are above 18 or 21. And um, also because the grammar of how a child speaks doesn't strictly follow the rules depending on the age. So they might change the order of the sentence, use a word which they actually don't mean, but we as humans, we, we understand the context, but for an AI, that's more complicated if actually sentences are in the wrong order or mixed up. Um, so we decided to start focusing on this user group type of a pair of young adults, but focusing on, on adults. And for the interaction design, we decided on three questions, namely, what does the robot need to know? So which type of answer should they actually be able to answer? How should it behave? And how to communicate interaction rules? And I call it interaction rules, but it's more about how to communicate the, the, the communication. So like a meta um, style of really communication. Because for example, now, um, if we would be talking face to face, um, humans do have mechanisms to yeah, guide and structure a conversation because if not, we will be just interrupting each other all the time. And the same applies if you need to talk to a robot, but in there, like many users don't have the experience, like what are triggers or signals that, that shows me that I can able actually talk now or that the ro robot or the system is listening. Um, and also, like as just as a hint, when I say robot, you can think about voice interaction in general, or uh, voice devices, voice assistants like Siri, Alexa, or even chatbots. They are textual, but they also have knowledge, behavior, and some rules on on how to communicate. So first of all, for the knowledge, um, I, we started with field observation, really being in the museum um, and collecting data like what are questions um what are questions which are recurring for example for customer service um collecting what was already there so that was like one really nice found from uh, the museum shop which it's not so easy to read but it says the visitor guide to the museum so basically it was a compilation of questions and answers so perfectly for what we actually want to implement and also a stakeholder workshop where we ask the experts, in this case, customer service, which are questions which are frequent and but also easy to answer. Because if an answer is really complicated or depending on who is actually asking it, that's also a tough question for um, implementing. And the outcome was that we have a content in a knowledge, so-called knowledge base, which is a database, um, which listed like all the questions which we thought it was relevant um, and the respective answers. And also the implementation of some functions to be able to answer something like, which time is it, how's the weather outside um, and questions like that. So the stakeholder workshop um, in here was, yeah, I kind of translated like only the access, but basically we wanted to focus on this right corner, like what are frequent questions and which are easy to answer because all the other ones, like if they only seldomly coming or if they, it's really hard to answer them, that's nothing specific enough 
um, or relevant enough to be included in this first iteration. Then we looked into the behavior um, along with desk research. Um, and with behavior, I mean, yeah, like nonverbal behavior, but also um, general communication style. And we based that on desk research because nonverbal behavior is like a key aspect um, in making your interaction feel human and authentic. And uh, voice gestures such as, hmm, okay, you're laughing, are like great help when making an interaction more lifelike. And for that, there's like a lot of, the, of existing um, literature and research on what can I actually be able to. So for example, from this robot, there's also an already existing nonverbal behavior set for mimics. Uh, and we are based on our research, did a selection on that, and also a list of um, proactive greetings. Because what a situation which would also happen sometimes is um, that users would, or potential users would approach the robot, but then not start talking to it because they were either afraid or they didn't know how to uh, actually start the conversation or were not even aware that this robot head, um, as some of the users called it, were actually able to talk. So we started to have kind of proactive greetings. And then the question arises: like, okay, when should I actually greet someone? Is it like when somebody passes like one meter or like three meters from me away? Like, what are the distances? And also here we did some um, only like observation on site because that's also like really, also really culture specific actually, like on how close you um, really approach your communication partner when you're talking. And here you can see like uh, the view of the robot of me. So basically identifying my face, saying, okay, there is a human in here. It's within my radar. So it's, that's why I'm, um, I'm actually yellow in that. So they focus the attention on, on me to be directed. For example, the head was in the direction of where I was. And based on that, we define proximity metrics. However, what we started to notice once on site is that users were not approaching the robot in the same distance than we as researchers are being used to it actually did. So what happened that users were more farther away and the robot didn't really um, yeah, see the see the persons as a as as interest to be able to start an interaction because they were too far away. So we basically adjusted the proximity metrics in here um, so that they could yeah, basically start a conversation even they were like maybe two or three meters away. Um, and that was something which yeah, only could be done on site. That's the ideal case, uh, the one we are, which we actually designed for. So an adult um, kind of close without any background noises, but as I said, public spaces are messy. So what you actually end up having are group constellations, um, users who are maybe even too close, as you can see on the right picture, to the system, so that doesn't pay attention as well because they don't can detect it. Um, or you have different interaction partners to start talking about. And for that, it's key to really have interaction rules as well and to be able to communicate them. Um, and here we started with an usability test, but again, here you can really see the difference. That's an usability test inside. You have a quiet environment, you have one person, 
really different to what I just showed here, where you have like many different users. Um, and on site observation, and we ended up with a red green light system so that it was green when the robot could actually listen to the user and red when it was talking or processing so that the user would know, okay, I can't talk now because the system is not listening. And additionally, from the on-site observation, we also printed some instructions and example questions so that um, users could actually start as well with some questions which were kind of predefined so that they were starting to engage with the system and then um, yeah, starting the conversation off. So to coming back to the use case, to really like to think uh, again about this image. You see, there is still a lot of work um, to do, but however, we started with this approach to really think about knowledge, behavior, and communication patterns and rules. Um, and in this case, optimizing for adults, because for example, here you see one challenge for inclusion definitely is um, that the child was too small, so the mother needed to hold it up um, to really see and interact with the robot. But we did this on purpose because then you have another challenge, for example, from um, to combine inclusion with actually other needs or requirements. So in this case, it's like really known that children, <laughs> like a lot of children, um, want to touch and want to interact with things physically, which is not that good for like a really expensive robot. So from our perspective, we wanted basically to have the robot out of um, the reach of small children who could potentially damage it. However, like if we want to focus now on this group on really going into okay child interaction, which is what we're doing in the next iterative design uh, where we're implementing the learning, we want to test on the different um, uh, embodiment. In this case, it was an avatar, so nothing physical. It's right on display, but with the same technology behind, you can talk, the, talk and ask the same questions. But for example, here we already don't have the challenge that it can be damaged so quickly, um, or and that's already like one step further to getting into the inclusive. In this case, for um, inclusion regarding the height of the person or and the, the user who's actually interacting with it. So to sum it up, public spaces are highly relevant for inclusion because there everybody can access the technology or the system. Plan inclusively, observe and iterate. If it can't be due to time constraint uh, inclusively from the start uh, for everybody, it's really key still to start the planning and knowing when, to, when, when you iteratively can include which user type into your design and keep that in mind and really coming back to that and iteratively improve the system so that it's inclusive for everybody, the same as your design. Thank you very much.